You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Uh, Roy, the other day, received right on a telegram, as I remember it, from the chief of the Japanese Press Association in which said the damnedest thing that ever happened. I would prefer this because no stir up bad feeling in this country, and this country is uh, ready to pull the trigger if the Japs do it. I mean, it won't stand the nonsense. Public opinion won't in this country from the Japs if they do some cool thing. Well, this Mitch Naga fellow wires to Roy and says, uh, there will be no war with the United States, I'm quoting from memory, on one condition, and one condition only. And that is that the United States will recognize the new era in not the Far East, but the East, meaning the whole of the East. Furthermore, that this recognition, there must be evidence of it. And the only evidence of this recognition the United States can give is to demilitarize all of its naval and air and army places in Wake, Midway, and Pearl Harbor. Because that's the first time that any damn chap has told us to get out of Hawaii. The Germans and the Japs have gone along the Italian for all right. Five, six years. Without the hooking, without the misjudging foreign opinion. They played a damn smart game. And the time may be coming when the Germans can just do some cool thing. That was good out there. Now the Batman chance to get made to do something foolish. I never thought, and it never occurred. Pearl Harbor. special edition of Randall Wallace Presents, and this one is, you know, uh, other presidents who got caught on tape. <laughs> well, you know, people thought when Watergate was going on that Richard Nixon was the first president who had ever recorded in the Oval Office, that, oh my gosh, he had invaded people's privacy, he was taping stuff, what was wrong with him? The truth is that it had gone on uh, all the way back to Franklin Roosevelt, and so... I thought it'd be interesting to look because we've done all these episodes on Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, and the tapes were a treasure when you were putting together something of this magnitude and this size as we have done with our show. But uh, I thought it'd be interesting to go back and look at some of the other tapes. Now, Franklin Roosevelt tape recorded some, uh, and and then uh, John F. Kennedy recorded some that we know about and we're able to go and, and, and listen to. Uh, and then after President 
uh, Nixon and Watergate, the taping stopped, basically. There, there was not a lot of recording. But there, you do have some moments when some people got recorded, you know, like Donald Trump by accident or, you know, people setting him up. And then you have these public phone calls uh, that Gerald, Gerald Ford did and, and Ronald Reagan did. And then Reagan did record a call with Margaret Thatcher. So we're going to take a look at, first, Franklin Roosevelt. And, uh, you know, Roosevelt could play hardball politics. And what we have on tape is an example of that. He's talking about Wendell Wilkie, who ran against him uh, in, I think, 44. Uh, he either ran against him in 36 or 44. I'm not real sure. I have to. I need to go look that up. But Wendell Wilkie was his Republican opponent. And we have him on tape here <laughs> airing out some, some dirty laundry. Uh, well, on this uh, thing, I I don't always remember. We're talking about stories, ancestry, and so forth and so on. There was a fellow once upon a time who was named Darby. And he had to run the hunting campaign for the general. He was slick as hell. He went down to an agent, to a method minister in not marrying the town on mother grandmother. This friend of town was got hold of method minister and told him the story about Harding's mother having a Negro mother. In other words, Darby found on the Methodist minister who was a Democrat and showed him certain papers and leave them to prove the case. The Methodist minister was a Democrat got all set up. And he started the story all on place the press to be up. And it was the most terrific boomerang against us. I agree with you that there is, as far as the old man goes, he can't use the culture. He can't use the stone with enough pain. People down the line can very properly, I mean, they county speakers and state speakers and so forth. They can use your material to the general practice world of less useful power. No matter what he was, no matter what he was going to do, he let him die in pain. That's good. Correct. As long as it's not a bunch people at the top. Now,
How about this woman? Keep it. Don't keep it here. Oh, the nice gal, right? The magazine, so forth and so on. The door of your wife. Nevertheless, there's the fact. And one very good way of screening it out by calling attention to the parallel in some species. Jimmy Walker, once upon a time, was living openly with this gal, all over the world. Living the house across the street from me. We had it called Mayfair. Mayfair. And she was an extremely attractive little cop and crazy costume, and Ralph was married and very happy. All good. Jimmy and his wife had supper. Long cooks. They had supper. And it came to my trial. Before me, it was Jimmy Walker, 1932. And Jimmy goes and hires his former wife for 10,000 bucks to come up to Albany on a Saturday. Jimmy was a good cat. He hadn't been to church in five whole years. And he paid his wife $10,000 to go up there to Albany on a Friday afternoon after my trial had finished for the week. We were to go on on Monday. Jimmy had never spent a Sunday in Albany in his life. But Mrs. Walker comes up to Albany, lives with him ostensibly in the same suite in the hotel, and on Sunday the two of them go to Mass at the Albany Cathedral together. Christ, ten thousand dollars. Now, now Mrs. Wilkie may not have been hired, but in effect she's been hired to return to Wendell and smile and make this campaign with him. Now, whether it was a money price behind it, I don't know, but it's the same idea. It doesn't have to be a money price in my place of the world. Mm. Mm. I never heard of the uh, Doris. The, uh, what? Doris Manning. He planted it on a... Did you ever know that? I didn't know he planted it. I knew the, I knew the story. I knew it was a very unwise story. Feminine. But well, I another interesting, another interesting. I'm afraid, afraid the boys might be using this program. Yeah. Here's, here's another interesting <coughs> satellite, the known movement, particularly. After we got licked that November, Pops and I, Danny Black came to see me and, uh, oh, I guess I went to see him in Baltimore. Right after the election, when I was going down to recuperate and shoot some bucks down in Louisiana, and I stopped off in Baltimore. And Dan Black, who I know rather slightly, he said, Look, we want to make you the head of New York, New Jersey, and New England. Building the Files Company. The Vice President. I said, Dan, there are two, I called him Mr. Black at that time. I said, there are two considerations. I don't want to give up my law practice. I will do this, if you let me. I'll make a contract to spend from 1 o'clock every day with the S&D. But up to 1 o'clock, noon, I'll be doing the law. But your job with the S&D is to copy according to our bad hands stuff. So I'll spend my luncheon hour 
the world. I said, the other condition is that you let me look over your list of officers and vice presidents. I've got second. They may be all right, but I've got second myself. He said, that's fair enough. There they are. They're on the list of authority. Charge of Ohio for the end of the day. Then he said he's been our agent for any kind of all our legislative work in Ohio and the legislature and so forth. And I can't help him. Well, he said, I think he's going to the cabinet. I said, I can say too, but I can't go into a company that's sorry to remain. So in order to get me to the F&B, the F&B fired Doherty out of it. Mr. Curry, Ralphie, I just delivered to you uh, last week of telling Georgia that you were not interested in who the candidate for them. Said what? You're not interested in who the candidate for governor? Well, Georgia, no, sir. Well, because I've been trying awfully hard to get you interested. The only thing I am personally interested in, although I can't say so out loud, is the defeat of Talmadge. Well, Tom is probably going to win. I think so. But the only way you can straighten it up is to pull one of them out. No way you can pull one of them out. Or pull one of them out. One of the other. You need to get out unless you ask them, and I said you wouldn't ask them, is that right? I won't ask them. I told you. I told you. The delegation that came in. I said that And Eugene Fox was in here, and Walter George was in here. I said, listen, boys. Because you know, I don't vote for George unless spent a lot of time around. I'm interested in good government, good government. And from what I hear, Thomas is going to be elected. Unless either Columbus Roberts or Nick withdraws. And I said, I don't know. The weaker one of the two ought to withdraw. But you fellas won't tell me which is the weaker of the two. Now, I don't know. I'm merely giving you a piece of advice. Get one of them to pull out of the race. And then I turned to this George delegation and I said, look here. If there's a question about who's the stronger, Nick's or Ralph's, why don't you do this? It's old fashioned, but it's awful simple. Toss a coin. Well, they went out laughing, and that's the way the thing stayed. The picture taken up at the park is um, fine. Mm. I saw it yesterday afternoon. Turned out fine. Mm-hmm. Well, what the mate says, and I haven't seen it yet, they say it'll be good. Good. Put on the orange. Fine. Fine. Well, the sun came out. It was just right. Yeah. I didn't need any paint on my face. Yeah. All right. All right. Now, now, actually, ask the Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Navy, if they would approve a meeting here on Monday, and would they telephone to the Canadian and ask them if Tuesday would be all right, instead of Monday, to meet in Ottawa. I think it's a good idea. Now, President John F. Kennedy recorded uh, some some very interesting uh, phone calls with other presidents as he was dealing with two huge issues and uh, that are accomplishments that he had during his two, two and a half, three years that he was president. Um, one of them 
is, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you will hear him here talking to President Hoover, uh, President Truman, and President Eisenhower. And then we'll go over and take a listen to him talk about the nuclear test ban treaty that he uh, was negotiating and negotiated. And he will reach out to Harry Truman uh, first to let him look over the, the, the documentation and the documents and then later to ask for his support on the nuclear test ban treaty. And you have two calls where they talk uh, uh, briefly. Um, one, he's going to ask him to look it over. Another one, he's going to ask him for his help. But uh, these are some interesting phone calls of the president informing his predecessors about the situation in Cuba and about the nuclear test ban treaty. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Only last Thursday, as evidence of this rapid offensive buildup was already in my hand, Soviet Foreign Minister Gromyko told me in my office that he was instructed to make it clear once again, as he said his government had already done, that Soviet assistance to Cuba, and I quote, pursued solely the purpose of contributing to the defense capabilities of Cuba, unquote. That, and I quote him, training by Soviet specialists of Cuban nationals in handling defensive armaments was by no means offensive. And that if it were otherwise, Mr. Gamico went on, the Soviet government would never become involved in rendering such assistance, unquote. That statement also was false. Acting, therefore, in the defense of our own security, and of the entire Western Hemisphere, and under the authority entrusted to me by the Constitution, as endorsed by the resolution of the Congress, I have directed that the following initial steps be taken immediately. To halt this offensive buildup, a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port, will they found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons be turned back. Shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to haul and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace and the stable relations between our two nations. I call upon him further to abandon this course of world domination and to join in an historic effort to end the perilous arms race and to transform the history of man. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. Not peace at the expense of freedom, but both peace and freedom here in this hemisphere and we hope around the world, God willing, that goal will be achieved. 
events are rather incredible. They are incredible. I just, uh, we're, I just, uh, we got a message on Friday night, uh, which was uh, rather forthcoming from them. And then on Saturday, we got the one on Turkey. And this morning, we got the one going back to their more reasonable position. So we're going to stay right on it and see if we can work up satisfactory verification procedures. But I just wanted to bring you up to date on it. We've got a lot of problems still to go, but I think we've made some progress. Well, I, I think we just have to, these, the rhythm of these things, we'll see what happens this week. But I'll, I just want you to know I, I'll keep in touch with you and keep you up to date. Thank you, Mr. President. Friday night, uh, which uh, was rather conciliatory on these withdrawals. Then on Sunday, Saturday morning, uh, 12 hours after the other letters received, we got this entirely different letter about the missile bases in Turkey. That's the way they do things. Then, uh, well, then we rejected that. Then they came back with uh, and accepted the earlier proposal. So I think we're going to have a lot of difficulties, but at least uh, we are on the, uh, we're making some progress about getting these missiles out of there. And in addition, I think that Khrushchev's had to some difficulties in uh, maintaining his position. I, my judgment is that it's going to make things tougher in Berlin because the fact he's had some of something of a setback in Cuba is going to make him uh, That's right. rougher in uh, Berlin, but at least uh, it's a little better than it was a couple of days ago. Well, you're on the right track. You just keep asking them. That's the language they understand. Just what you give. All right, good. They've been asking me for comments, and I said the President of the United States no man can comment on it. All right. Okay. Good. Take care. I'll be in touch with you. All right. Thank you, Mr. President. I certainly appreciate the call. Oh, thank you, Mr. President. Hello? Yes, please. Oh, the gentleman on there. I'll put it on. Yes, sir. Ready? Hello? General, how are you? Oh, fine. General, I just wanted to bring you up to date on this uh, matter because I know of your concern about it. We got, uh, Friday night, got a message from uh, Khrushchev, which... Uh, said that uh, he would uh, withdraw these missiles and technicians and so on, providing we did not plan to invade Cuba. We uh, then got a message, uh, a public one, the next morning, in which he said he would do that if we withdrew our missiles from Turkey. We uh, then, as you know, uh, issued a statement that uh, we couldn't get into that deal. So uh, we then got this message this morning. So we now uh, have to wait to see how it unfolds, and there's a good deal of complexities to it. Uh, if the, uh, the withdrawal of these missiles, technicians, and the cessation of uh, subversive activity by them, well, we just have to set up satisfactory procedures to determine whether these actions will be carried out. So I would think that uh, if we can do that, we'll be... Uh, find our interests advanced, even though it may be only one more chapter in a rather long story as far as Cuba's concerned. Of course, but, uh, Mr. President, did he, uh, does he put any conditions on whatsoever, then? No, except uh, that uh, we're not going to invade Cuba. Yeah. 
That's the only one we've got uh, now. But we don't plan to invade Cuba under these conditions anyway. No. So if we can get them out, we're better off by yeah, far. Yeah, that's, that's correct. I, I quite agree. I just uh, wondered whether he was trying to, uh, knowing we would keep our word, whether he would try to uh, engage us in any kind of statements or commitments that would finally one day could be uh, very uh, embarrassing. Listen, suppose they got in, suppose they start to, uh, to uh, bombard Guantanamo. Right. Uh, what I, I'm getting at, I quite agree this is a very... Uh, Right. Oh, well, I agree. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think what we've got to do is keep... That's why I don't think the Cuban story can be over yet. Uh, I think we will retain sufficient freedom to protect our interests if he... If he... Uh, if he... Uh, if they engage in subversion, if they uh, attempt to do any aggressive acts and so on, then all bets are off. In addition, my guess is that uh, by the end of next month, we're going to be toe-to-toe in Berlin anyway. So that uh, I think this is uh, important uh, for the for the time being because it uh, requires quite a step down for really for Khrushchev. On the other hand, I think that uh, as we all know, they they just uh, probe and uh, their words unreliable. So we just have to stay uh, busy on it. Um, as I've heard before, fellow citizens. I speak to you tonight in a spirit of hope. Eighteen years ago, the event of nuclear weapons changed the course of the world, as well as the war. Since that time, all mankind has been struggling to escape from the darkening prospect of mass destruction on Earth. In an age when both sides have come to possess enough nuclear power to destroy the human race several times over. The world of communism and the world of free choice have been caught up in a vicious circle of conflicting ideology and interest. Each increase of tension has produced an increase of arms. Each increase of arms has produced an increase of tension. In these years, the United States and the Soviet Union have frequently communicated suspicion and warnings to each other, but very rarely hope. Our representatives have met at the summit and at the brink. They have met in Washington and in Moscow, in Geneva, and at the United Nations. But too often these meetings have produced 
only darkness, discord, or disillusion. Yesterday, a shaft of light cut into the darkness. Negotiations were concluded in Moscow on a treaty to ban all nuclear tests in the atmosphere, in outer space, and underwater. For the first time, an agreement has been reached. I'm to talk to you about our test, uh, where we're going with Harriman out there in Moscow. I've got, uh, we've more or less come to some uh, uh, agreement, it looks like, on the language. Uh, it covers tests in the atmosphere, space, and in uh, underwater, which we can, of course, detect. Uh, we can and will, under this agreement, continue underground testing. I don't know what the significance of this may be. It may be have some importance because of the Chinese business, and it's therefore it seemed to me that we ought to uh, explore how far we can go with the Russians in uh, in uh, uh, relaxing the trouble. It couldn't possibly hurt anything. That's what I didn't think. And uh, But I thought I'd send you overnight a copy of this, and then I'd be glad to have somebody come out and talk to you if you had any questions. All right. All right. I'll have it in the morning then. I'll send it to you uh, right now, right. and uh, then you could look at it, and then perhaps we could talk again. All right. How are you doing otherwise? Yeah, I've got anything to complain about. <laughs> well, you're very fortunate. You're very fortunate. <laughs> I appreciate your uh, taking the time out to tell me about this because I'm very much interested. Right, good. Fine, Mr. President. Well, I'll send it to you right now. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Hello? How are you? I'm all right. I want to congratulate you on that treatment. Well, I think Abraham did a good job, and I think it uh, protects our interest without, uh, but on the other hand, maybe it's going to help. I do, too. And I'm writing you a personal confidential letter about uh, a certain paragraph in it, which uh, uh, I know you're familiar with, but I thought that's what you want Right, right. But I'm in complete agreement with what, what you can provide. My goodness, maybe we can save well, I think that's the whole, uh, I think that's just, just to see where we go and see what happens with China. I think that's our... Well, I appreciate that very much, uh, Mr. President. That's very generous, and I, and I'm going to make a little... Good, fine. Well, I think that anything you say about it will be very helpful. Well, I'm not going to say anything publicly, but you can make me do it. Yeah, well, I think... I don't like these fellows who force the president on other decisions. Well, no, but I tell you what, I'm going to make a speech tonight. Then any time you could say anything would be very helpful. I'll be glad to do it. Fine, when they're going to the St. Louis tomorrow... Yeah. ...to the American Legion Convention. Yeah. Uh, you think that's a good... That? I can't imagine a better. I'll, I'll make some statements on the subject of this. That's actually the only connection with the letter which I'll send you. That'd be very helpful. Well, I want to do it the way you want it. Fine. Well, if you could say something tomorrow, I think that would really give us a lift. I'll be glad to say it. I thought maybe Sunday uh, morning separate might be a good place to say it. Oh, good. That's fine, President. Well, you sound in good shape. All right. All right. The only trouble with me is that uh, the, uh, the main difficulty I have is to keep the white satisfied. <laughs> Well, that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know how that is. Uh, she's very much afraid I'm going to hurt myself while she's going on. Yeah, yeah. But then I want to do whatever will be helpful to you. Well, that's fine. I think anything you can say tomorrow will be very good. All right.
Thank you very much. One of the few missions to Moscow in recent years that can be said to have a happy ending concludes as Under Secretary of State Averill Harriman, with Secretary of State Dean Rusk, arrives at Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Here at the weekend White House, a report on the negotiations that led to the drafting of the nuclear test ban is delivered to the President by Mr. Harriman. That report and a personal message to Mr. Kennedy from Soviet Premier Khrushchev are not made public. Mr. Harriman describes the agreement to ban nuclear tests in the atmosphere, in outer space, and underwater as a good treaty, something we have wanted for many years. Mr. Kennedy tells the nation some of the treaty's limitations. This treaty is not the millennium. It will not resolve all conflicts or cause the communists to forego their ambitions or eliminate the dangers of war. It will not reduce our need for arms, or allies, or programs of assistance to others. But it is an important first step, a step towards peace, a step towards reason, a step away from war. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. That is, you know, you get this feeling about his the glamorous John F. Kennedy, but a lot of people have described him as he could be icy cold and he could get hot tempered. And this is a great case of, I think Mrs. Kennedy was going somewhere to a military installation and they spent a bunch of money, the, the, the Air Force did, on furniture. And then one of these guys, actually before Mrs. Kennedy gets there, gets her his picture taken uh, buy some of in front of some of the furniture, um, you know, because he's helping put Mrs. Kennedy's stuff together or something. And boy, he went through the roof. And you hear him; he's trying to talk to uh, a a general, I think, in one of these calls. And then the other one is, I think, the Secretary um, of Defense. Or and it's, I mean, tell you, he is red hot, mad.
spend five thousand dollars for that let's cut their budget another hundred million precisely mr president uh the last word that they had for me yesterday after my talk to pier was to keep the photographers yeah. out of there and, okay. and fight them out of there okay they went ahead on their own the funny part about this is that as a sidelight which might lighten your day is that the army you know whom we saved from this sort of thing out Walter Reed, when they saw this yesterday, they're unhappy, if you please. Well, they, I mean, yeah, so that's why the goddamn service, they ought to cut them a billion dollars. That's right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you think of what the waste goes on. It is, is. absolutely not. Imagine what they do if you didn't just stay in their ass. They're going to order me three planes instead of one. Precisely. They're going to do all these. I mean, they, that's the way they, these guys spend money. I mean, oh, absolutely. They shock if we don't. Now, the only thing is, it would seem to me, I'd like to turn that, I'd like to send that furniture back. Have they paid for it? I, I'll find out. Just on my own. I don't care. We own a store, but I just like to send that goddamn furniture back. It's probably worth about two fifteen hundred, two thousand bucks. When I asked him yesterday, where did the five thousand dollars go? Yeah. From the things they told me, I said, well, you couldn't have possibly spent five thousand on that. They've lied about it. Now I've gone back to them this morning and said, get the facts. And I'm sick of being find yeah. telling the president of the White House the wrong facts. Said, let's get the facts to begin with. Let's find out how much they spent on this thing. Uh, I mean, let's find out what they spent, where the money came from. Also, where, if the bills have been paid, because a lot of the stuff we can just ship right back today. Right. I'll get ready. I'd love to send it right back to Jordan Marsh in an Air Force truck this afternoon with that captain on it. <laughs> now, what about transferring his ass out of here in about a month? He doesn't have any sense. For incompetence, not for screwing us. Exactly. Well, and I'm that silly fellow who had his picture taken next to the bed, I'd have him go up to Alaska, too. But P.A. will be talking to you about that. Right. Okay. General? Yes, sir. That Air Force has caused itself more grief with that silly bastard. Did you see the post this morning? Yes, sir. I'm looking See that fellow's picture by the bed? Yes, sir. Are they, and you see that furniture they bought from Jordan Marsh? What the hell are they let the reporters in there for? Are they crazy up there? Now you know what's going to do. Any congressman's going to get up and say, Christ, if they can throw $5,000 away on this, let's cut them another billion dollars. You just sank the Air Force budget. You're crazy up there. Are they crazy? That silly bastard with his picture next to the bed? I'm uh, appalled, but... Uh... Well, I'm appalled, too. Now, the thing is, I, the thing of the matter is, I'm going to get that furniture. I just told Sylvester, and you can talk to him. I want to find out if we pay for that furniture, because I want it to go back to George Marshall. All right, huh? Then I want that fellow's incompetent who had his picture taken next to Mrs. Kennedy's bed, if that's what it is. I mean, he's a silly bastard. I wouldn't have him running a cat house. And that uh, Colonel Carlson, who let in Larry Newman and those reporters, is he crazy, too? Christ, they're not all incompetent. Is that the way they're throwing money around over there? You better look into it, and especially when you told me that they hadn't spent a cent. Well, sir, this is uh, obviously. Uh, well, this is obviously a fuck up. That's right. Okay. That's right. 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 Now, after Watergate, no president was crazy enough to record himself that much anymore. Uh, and so you do have a couple of cases, though, where these staged calls are made. Uh, presidents love to do that, especially when people are in outer space. Uh, and, and President Nixon is the first one to do it. He does that long distance call to the moon. But Gerald Ford makes one of these calls. This is to the joint Apollo-Soyuz uh, flight, and uh, and he's going to call and talk to them. And then President Reagan will call, in April of 1985, the Discoverer uh, shuttle mission out in outer space. 
Gentlemen, um, let me call to express my very great admiration for your hard work, your total dedication in preparing for this first joint flight. All of us here in Washington in the United States send to you our very warmest congratulations for your successful rendezvous and for your docking and we wish you the very best for a successful completion of the remainder of your mission. Your flight is a momentous event and a very great achievement, not only for the five of you, but also for the thousands of American and Soviet scientists and technicians who have worked together for three years to ensure the success of this very historic and very successful experiment. I might like to say a word or two to uh, uh, Valerie uh, Kubasov, the other uh, member of the cosmonaut crew. I might say to him, uh, as well as uh, Colonel Leonov, I remember both of you on that enjoyable Saturday last September when both crews visited the White House and joined me in a picnic over in Virginia. We flew from the White House over to this picnic uh, just across the river. We had some um, uh, crab uh, specialties that uh, I enjoyed and I think you uh, did. I'm sure you're having a little different menu, uh, somewhat uh, different food on this occasion. What are you having over there um, out in space? We have a good uh, space uh, food. There are some Russian soup, some Russian meat, some juice, some coffee, and uh, a lot of butter. No beer, no crap. Well, let me say in conclusion, um, we look forward to your safe return. It's been a tremendous demonstration of cooperation between our scientists, our technicians, and of course our astronauts and their counterparts, the cosmonauts from the Soviet Union. And may I say, in signing off, here's to a soft landing. Houston, go. Roger, the president is ready at this time. Roger that, thank you. We'll be getting right back. I need a voice check from you. If you'll look at the camera, stand right in front of the camera and give me a voice check for sync. Hello, Oval Office. Roger, go ahead. This is the White yeah. House board. Could you, could you look at the camera for me so we can establish lip sync? Stand by a second. Mr. Lucas? Yes. Could you look at the camera so, so he can establish lip sync, please? All right, you're looking at the camera. Okay, we have good sync. Thank you. Roger. And Discovery Houston, we've got the uh, mid-deck TV, and we're standing by. Roger, Houston. Thank you. Discovery, this is the Oval Office. Do you copy over? Try again, please. And Discovery Houston, uh, we have a call for you from the White House. Do you copy? Roger, we copy and we're already. Uh, Discovery, this is the Oval Office. Uh, how copy over? 
Oval Office, we read you loud and clear. Uh, Discovery Oval Office, that's Sir Roger. Stand by for the President. Commander Bob Cole? Commander Bob Cole? Greetings, we've... Good morning, Mr. President. Ah, th thank you. I was... I thought maybe I might have missed you. Well, listen, we know you've had some frustrations up there, but overall, I think we can all be proud of the fourth mission of the Discovery and all that you've accomplished. We've been watching down here, and I mean all of America, and I want you to know that we're rooting for you all. We saw a lot of human ingenuity at work, making the fly swatter-like tool, and as we watched... Jeff Hoffman and Dave Griggs installed it on the Discovery's arm. We had to acknowledge that was great work, and we're calling all of you up there now, the SWAT team. I want to congratulate astronauts Bob Cove and Williams on the maneuvers you've been putting the shuttle through. This is the 16th shuttle to go up, and we're learning more about its versatility every trip. I see, I've seen you playing, excuse me, I mean demonstrating, balls and jacks and yo-yos and even a slinky toy in the zero gravity of space. And now I know you're doing this to make some educational videotapes for students learning about the laws of physics. That's really the best thing about our space program, the inspiration and challenge that it gives our, our young people. You've been conducting extensive tests on the human body's blood flow and digestion. And I want to ask astronaut physician Ray Seddon, how are these tests working out. And, Ray, I'd also like to commend you on your dexterity in hitting that pin on the side of the satellite. I can, if you don't mind, I can think of a job on a ranch in California that you might be interested in. <laughs> but, Senator Garn, I know that you're taking part in the health experiments, and, Jake, how are you doing? You, uh, you're doing a fine job up there, but I could use your help down here right now in getting the federal budget uh, under control and arranging assistance for some people fighting for their freedom in Central America, so don't stay up there too long. You know, Jake, maybe in around... Well, Mr. President, I'm doing just great. I've missed you, but I'll be back on Tuesday. I'm well aware of the vote on the Nicaraguan aid on Tuesday night, and I'll be voting just the way you'd like me to when I get back. <laughs> well, God bless you. And you know, Jake, maybe... In around four years or so, uh, you could use your influence with NASA to uh, get a certain retired politician a ride on the space shuttle. Uh, well, I just want all of you to know how proud we are of you. Good luck, and God be with all of you. Anyone up there want Thank to... Thank you very much, Mr. President. We certainly enjoy being here, and I'm sure you realize that we're just the people in space uh, who are the working edge of the great team that's on the ground supporting us. Thanks again. Well, you're a great team up there, and we're all very proud of you. God bless you. This next call involving Ronald Reagan is one of the few that I know of of taping of a private call, uh, the way that President Nixon and President Johnson and President Kennedy's tapes are, uh, where they're, they've got their phone calls recorded. Uh, Ronald Reagan had... Uh, had, I think, not informed uh, Mrs. Thatcher about some of the activities in the Caribbean that led to Grenada. And he is calling to apologize. 
And I think he decided he wanted to record it. <laughs> Maybe he wanted a witness or whatever. But uh, anyway, it is a fascinating look at Ronald Reagan as he apologizes to the British Prime Minister uh, for the activities, for her not being informed as she should have been uh, about activities in the Caribbean. Hello, Margaret Thatcher. If I were there, Margaret, I'd throw my hat in the door before I came in. Listen, I'm. We regret very much the embarrassment that's been caused you, and I'd just like to tell you what the story is from our end out here. I was awakened at three o'clock in the morning, supposedly on a golfing vacation down in Georgia, and uh, was there with the Secretary of State, and so we met in pajamas out in the living room of our suite to. Uh, because of this urgent plea from the Organization of East Caribbean States. We immediately got a group going back here in Washington, in which we shortly joined on planning and so forth. It was literally a matter of hours. When your word came of your concerns, by the time I got it, the, the zero hour had passed and our forces were on their way. And, of course, the time difference made that it was later in the day when you learned of it. And for us over here, it was only 5.30 in the morning when the, they finally landed. And at last, we could talk plainly. I would not speak for very long, even on the secret telephone to you. Because even that can be broken. Yes. So I'm very much aware of sensitivity. Well. And, but the, the action is underway now. And we just hope that um, it will be successful. Well, we are sure it is. It's going beautifully. Well, let's hope it's soon over, and that you manage to get a democracy restored. We want to put them kind of out ahead in helping in the restoration of a government so there'll be no taint of big old Uncle Sam trying to impose a government on them. Well, there's a lot of work to do yet, Ron, still, isn't there? Oh, yes. Yeah, and... Uh, and it'll be very tricky. We, we think that the military... Uh, part of it is going to end very shortly. But I, as I say, I'm sorry for any embarrassment we caused you, but please understand it was just our fear of our own <laughs> weakness over here with regard to secrecy. It's very kind of you to have run, Ron. Well, I my pleasure. Appreciate it. How is Nancy? Just fine. Good. Give her my love. I shall. All right. Thank you very much. I must return to this debate in the House. It's a bit tricky. Oh, all right. <laughs> Go get him. Eat him alive. Bye-bye. All right, bye. One of the things that's happened in uh, these later years is some government recordings uh, have been released, and one of the major events of the Reagan presidency happened actually early on uh, in 1981, March of 1981, was the assassination attempt on his life. And the Secret Service calls... Uh, back and forth, they're radioing each other as it happens and, and as they get him to the hospital, uh, were recorded and released a few years back. And I thought you might be interested in hearing what was a scary moment. I was about 11 years old. I remember coming home from school and this being all over the place uh, when it when it happened. Um, and I can remember uh, Dan Rather announcing that James Brady had died. And this is one where I'm not going to beat the press up. I don't, uh, you know, he was shot in the head. James Brady was the press secretary. 
Uh, and it was, I can remember just, my mother was in tears and we were just watching that TV. Uh, it was a, a moment that scared the nation. And they said it did so, it psychologically, that Mrs. Mrs. Reagan never got over it and that she cocooned the president from uh, the public, really, uh, not allowing him to work rope lines and that kind of thing and having the Secret Service on top of, her, of him all the time. Uh, it, so anyway, it's a fascinating set of tapes to listen to. Here's a Secret Service on the day that President Reagan, uh, the attempt on his life.
some agents up there to help. Alright, fire, Shattuck. Shattuck from the... Now, all right, press back.
tough subject, the assassination attempt on President uh, Reagan. So I thought we'd go back one more time, because when it comes to presidential recordings, as the old uh, Carly Simon song goes, nobody does it better than Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> he is, his is the best and the most entertaining, and here are two that you'll get a kick out of. Here's Lyndon Johnson talking to Governor John Conley about uh, almost getting run off the road while he's drinking beer and driving, and then him talking to the first man in history to spend 30 days under the ocean uh, in a one of those biosphere things. And uh, to keep them alive under the sea, they got to breathe a little different. And uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you listen to it. I see where you are. Did I really? I didn't know it, but the uh, paper's got a big headline in it. What does it say? I didn't see it. President Johnson was endangered Saturday when a convertible in which he was riding was forced into a narrow shoulder of a farm road to avoid a collision. The incident occurred as Governor Conley drove Johnson around his Floresville ranch. A Texas highway patrolman speeded up a hill to pass the motorcade and met an oncoming car had to cut sharply in front of the president's car. Conley slowed and moved on to the shoulder. The incident did not interrupt the tour. Connolly continued to point out sights on each side of the road. <laughs> now, I'm afraid to go to church. Every time I go, they say I'm driving 100 miles an hour. And I did get up to about 70 watching it one time, and maybe 80. But uh, I was very cautious and careful of the people I was with. And I did have a half a uh, 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 paper cup full of beer. Commander Carpenter is in a synthetic gas atmosphere. He, he's in a what atmosphere? A synthetic gas atmosphere, using helium instead of air. That causes the human voice to be very garbled, but I think the president will understand. Operator? Yes. What, what, uh, he said a synthetic what? Uh, a synthetic helium gas. Atmosphere. 
jet, and it makes his voice sound garbled and real high pitched. Oh, I see. Okay, wait a minute. Now we'll try it. God, I wonder if anybody understands this. Well, I don't know. The operator said that she knew what I was trying to tell her, but apparently she didn't. Well, we just sit tight and see. All right. Did you watch this? Scott, do you read me all right? Yes, sir, Mr. President. Did you loud and clear? How many? Fine. Well, Scott, I'm mighty glad to hear from you. You've convinced me and all the nation that whether you're going up or down, you have the courage and the skill to do a fine job. Well, thank you very much. There were a lot of other people who demonstrated the same kind of uh, courage. It's a great crew out here. And we're all very honored and pleased that you saw fit to call us and uh, let us know that uh, you were interested in what we're doing. Uh, I just wanted to say hello to you and all the fellows associated with you, and uh, good luck, and uh, uh, we're mighty proud of you. Thank you very much, sir, for calling. Thank you, Scott. Good luck. I'll see you later. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.